The following presentation was recorded at the 2000 Teachers Workshop at Faith Builders. More information on Faith Builders events at fbep.org. The time we have left, I'd like to look with you at using some living books in our reading and teaching. We want to look a bit at uh, different kinds of questions. We'll look at a bit at uh, testing and also at some teaching, some rote things. Perhaps I can have some of you pass out all these papers. Uh, we'll use them then one at a time, but everybody should get one of each flavor. walk around and circulate those. I'd like to start by talking about the power of one of the most valuable things you will do is read to your students and never stop reading to them. Read to them when they start school, read to them when they're in lower elementary grades, upper elementary, junior high, and senior high. Don't stop. Read to them. Read them. You can read some whole books, but you can also read parts of books. And then, if those books are available, they will go on, many of them, and read, finish those books themselves. Now, if it fits your situation and your curriculum, I would also encourage you to use some real books as, in addition to reading to them for story or whatever, why use some in actually in your reading class or literature class. There is a poster back there on the back table as I referred to yesterday and I see you have been adding your titles. We did not get that typed up. But uh, you can look over that list and pull off some titles if you need good suggestions of books to read. And if one of you would like to, you could actually take that and type it up and make it available to other people. There's a list on the table out in the lobby of everybody who's in this room in your address. I'm going to refer to several books that we've used in our school uh, actually as part of the curriculum. One is Amos Fortune Free Man and if you have a good book, if you, you'll know that you have a good book when it's one that you as a teacher look forward to using every year. You never tire of that book. 
And every time you read it, you see something in it you did not see the time before. Something new impresses you. If the book that you use is one that uh, you could take it or leave it, and once you read it once or twice, you've, you've done it, it's really not appropriate to use in the curriculum. That is, if you're going to go to the, to the uh, extent of, of getting copies of a book and using them, make sure you get one that is of substance for that. Amos Fortune is one such book. He was a, it's based on the true story of a man who was taken as a slave in Africa, as a young, young man. He was the son of a king in Africa. He was brought to Massachusetts and he was purchased uh, in Massachusetts and worked as a slave, learned the tanner's trade, and he never forgot that he was a son of a king. And I could talk all morning about Amos Fortune, but I'll refrain from that. But he remembered that he was a son of a king. What a powerful metaphor. What a powerful metaphor. To remember that you are the son, you are the daughter of a king. And that controls the way you think and the way you behave. And he actually did live the life. And he did... He was able to live without bitterness. He became a Christian, attended church in Jaffrey, uh, New Hampshire, and had to sit in the place for the blacks. He was not able to sit with the whites, and he understood that. He, he realized that this is not how it should have been, but he did not get bitter about that. Uh, many people would have gotten very bitter. And he was able to... He, uh, he eventually... Uh, earned his freedom, and he was able to buy some property. He was able to set up a uh, shop as a tanner. And when he was up in his 70s, yet he worked hard, and he was burdened. He, was, he labored hard to free other people. Tremendous themes in this book of freedom and what it means to be free, what it means to be a slave. I'd like to read just a few snitches from this in one case, he purchased in New Hampshire in those years, if a person was very poor, they didn't put them on welfare. If there was an orphan or someone else who was very poor, they had an auction in the community in the end of the winter. And people went to the auction and they bid on these people. And what they did, what happened then was that, for example, Titus here was an indigent person. He would be put up for auction. And the, and, uh, the auctioneer would start at a at a uh, high figure, and he'd ask, who will keep Titus for a year for, let's say, $10,000? And, of course, many people may raise their hands, because if the town pays you $10,000, you would be very happy, because you think it won't cost you that much to keep Titus. So anyway, the bids come down, but of course then somebody else might do for 9000 somebody for eight, And this keeps coming down and down, and the person with the biggest heart and the most love will, will come out with the lowest bid. And somebody might say, I'll keep Titus for a year for $100. And whoever accepted the responsibility of caring for that person for a year with the lowest amount of money from the town got the person. And so there was a young lady, Polly Burdu, who was being put up for auction. She was 14 years old. And reading now from the book, the auctioneer says, she may be thin, but she won't cost you much to keep if she eats little. She's got a good pair of arms and legs that should carry her as far as anyone here is likely to go. What am I bid? And so it started out at four pounds. And so it kept going and kept going. 
And uh, the auctioneer says, going, going, one pound 16. Amos Fortune spoke up, and the auctioneer gasped. A ripple of am amazement ran through the group of people in the meeting house. You must like your town to want to save it so much money, the auctioneer commented. Going, going, he said in a loud voice, gone to Mr. Amos Fortune. Polly Burdue for one year at one pound and 16 pence. And so they took her home. And nobody else went so cheap. The rest of them brought things like five pounds, ten pounds, and so on. And so Polly went home with them. She tried to be a help to Violet in the work of the house, but dusting cloth or broom had a way of falling from her hands. Violet would come upon her standing still and staring before her, the task she had been given to do still undone. And so they sent her to school, but she didn't do very well in school. Her health failed. What are you thinking about all the time? They asked her, but Polly could never say. And Violet, that is Amos's wife, in exasperation, exclaimed to Amos, it's only your kindness that keeps her, Amos, for anyone else would have returned her to the town long ago. And Amos smiled in answer. What he had done had been done with good reason, and he was satisfied. And so, sometime later, he said, she hasn't long... She hasn't long with us, and what she gets from you will help her where she's going, Amos said. Soon Polly could not raise herself from her bed, but the weaker she grew, the more she smiled, as if a kind of content were coming over her being. And so, one night, early in November, Polly asked Amos to help her sit up. He put his arms around her and held her up. She was so light that he felt if he held a flower on its stalk, it could be no heavier. She held out her hands, resting her right hand in violets that were worn and coarse with the care she had given to others, and her left hand in cylindias that were supple and strong. Her eyes she kept on Amos. Peace dwelt in her face. A smile hovered over her lips, and for the first time she seemed to be seeing clearly those who were close to her. Her gaze that had always been so far away had come near at last. A small shudder passed over her body, she sat up very straight for a moment, even without the aid of Amos's arms, and then she fell back into his arms. Amos put his back, Amos put back his head, and Violet saw him shake with his lips the familiar words, Thank you. Lord. Violet turned to him with a question in her eyes. Amos answered it, I wanted her to die free. I knew she didn't have long when I bid on her. But she, she's had almost a year of freedom. She wasn't ever a slave, Violet reminded him. She was born free. He shook his head. She wasn't free when she was so poor. She's gone ahead now with a smile on her face and delight in her eyes. Frightened little girl that she was, she's left that far behind and she's crossing Jordan unafraid. His face was glowing, almost as if he were sharing some of the radiance he knew had reached out to encircle Polly. Violet looked at him. Never before had she felt so much love for this man who seemed to live to give freedom to others. You'd set all the world free if you could, wouldn't you, Amos? He shook his head. Just the part of it that I can touch, that's all any man can do. And then at the end of the book, he was 
nearing his end and he went to see the deacon and he said, I'd like to make out my will. The deacon said, fine, I'll do that for you. And so he had some money that he had uh, earned and he told the deacon, and let me read a bit here uh, before that starts. It was only a year ago, he recalled, that he had taken a hide for delivery to the tavern. He would not have chosen such a place for delivery had not the owner specified it. And when he got there, he would have turned away if he could, for the man was not in such a state as one with whom he liked to do business. He was drunk. Amos Fortune had stood in the doorway, and the owner of the hide had called to him from the bar. What do I owe you? He had asked. Amos answered, Five dollars. Proud to be giving his price in the new tender. Putting on airs, he as the man laughed back, a pound sterling is what I'd call it. Amos stood, stood tall and ramrods and straight on the threshold, facing a room full of men. It's your leather, but it's my price, he said quietly, and we've each got a right to our own. The man go forward loudly, lunged across the room to seize the leather. Amos said, five dollars is the price you agreed on when you bought the hide to me. The man laughed again, tossed a handful of coins on the floor. Money has lost its value since then. Take what you can get, be glad, be glad of it, he said. Amos was obliged to get down on his hands and knees to pick up the coins that had rolled off all over the room. A fire was burning in him as he trudged home with a pittance in his pocket and no redress at hand. For when a white man chose to be overruling, there was little the black man could say or do, but Amos would not go home while hate burned within him. So he sat on a boulder by, on a boulder by the roadside and faced his mountain. That's, that's Mount Monadnock, which is uh, near Jaffrey, New Hampshire. And then he looked up on the mountain and he saw that they were burning some brush off the mountain. And he watched the fire. And he, he realized, he said, hate could do that to a man, Amos thought. Consume him and leave him smoldering. But he was a free man and a free at a great cost. And he would not put himself in bondage again. So Amos got up from the boulder and walked home, and his friend Moses walked with him. The Moses, who had followed a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night, and kept himself free from the bickerings of his people so that he could be their leader. You're late, Violet said, wondering at his silence. Amos agreed. Then he told her of the fire on the mountain that he had been watching. Did you bring back good money for your leather, Violet asked. I was paid for it, Amos answered. Violet heard him putting the money away in the stone crock. She was surprised that it was going there, for that was a special place, a special fund Amos was creating. But she smiled to herself. So many coins must mean he had been paid well. Now, Amos had this special crock that he was putting money in throughout his later life. He didn't know what he was going to do with it, but he, it was kind of a sanctified fund, and he was going to sometime do something with this special fund. And so he added the little pittance that he had picked off the floor to that special crock. Now, having said that, we go back to the deacon, 
He's making out his will. And he takes the money from his crock. And he, he asked two things. And the second thing he said, Amos unwrapped the handkerchief in which he had put the rest of the money from the stone crock, $243 in all. He counted it out slowly as he laid it on the table before Deacon Spafford. Among it was the money received from the town for the care of Polly Burdu, and some of the coins were those given him at the tavern for the leather he had delivered there. Deacon Spafford noted the amount and wrote after it, for the school, the town school. Then, with his quill poised in, the, in hand, he looked across the table at Amos. And will you say what should be done with it, he asked. Amos answered, the town shall use the money in any way it sees fit to educate its sons and daughters. I have heard that those in your care have not always fared well at the school, Deacon Spofford said, as if he were asking forgiveness of Amos' fortune. Now, what he's referring to is that Amos had bought several people over the years and set them free, including his, his wife, and whom he married, and some of his children were sent to school and the teacher said, sorry, we can't help them. And so the deacon said, I've heard that those in your care have not always fared well at the school. And Amos' reply was, that is why I give the money to the school. Amos replied as he rose to leave. And so he signed his name and he left. And he walked slowly home, thinking of the disposition he had made of the last money he would ever earn. Humbly he prayed that as the boys and girls learn more, they would know what they did, and so do only what was worthy of men and women. He was happy, he felt light of heart, and a buoyancy came into his footsteps. You can come for me any time now, he said, looking skyward. I am ready. Now that's only the same thing, what's in that book. And... <clears throat> I don't have the opportunity to teach that, but because it's taught by teachers of the younger children in our, in our room, uh, the younger grades. But if you get your hands on books like that, and there are many of them, that's only one, there are many, many books like that. You can hardly wait until it's time the next year to share that book with your children. And you don't want to dissect it and make all the illusions and applications. It, it is living. And so those things will, will uh, enter uh, the children's hearts. They will not, no, they will not impress uh, different children. will see things at different ages. The interesting thing about that book is that it is a, it's a biography. A few years ago, we had opportunity to be in New Hampshire, and we drove through the area and actually stayed overnight at the state park at Mount Monadnack State Park, where Amos used to look up on the mountain. It's interesting to visit places where you read about people. And then we drove into the uh, town, and the town library there in Jaffrey, we uh, arrived there and went into the library just at the time that a school group was arriving. <clears throat> they had guessed what book they had just read. A uh, group of fourth or fifth graders, they had just read Amos Fortune. And so they were having a tour through the library and up on the top floor for some of the artifacts, some of the things with his own handwriting. Uh, including the uh, deed, I believe, or whatever you call it, the indenture that showed that he was a free man. And uh, 
it was an interesting experience to, to see the church where he stayed. But he was a big man, a big man. That's the kind of thing, the kind of person that you want your fifth and sixth graders to look up to as heroes, men who have big hearts, who would like to, to recognize that they can't set the world free, but they'll do it one at a time, whatever they can touch, whatever part they can touch is going to be better because they were there. And that's a challenge to have before your students, and it's wonderful if that can come out of the curriculum out of the books that you read to them. And if your curriculum isn't built such that this is in the material, at least in your story time when you pick books, you can read big books to your students. Another one that, uh, that I have opportunity to, to use is the bronze bow. This one we use in, uh, in grades uh, eight and nine. And it really is, uh, the main character is of that age. He's about 16. And the setting is in, in uh, Palestine, at the time of Christ. And the, the theme is looking for the Messiah. They're looking, the Jews are just wanting the Messiah to come, deal with these ugly Romans, and set the world straight again, and get everything back the way it should be. And uh, Daniel has a particular drive because his parents, he actually saw his father crucified and vowed as he stood at the cross that he would live and die for Israel's glory. Furthermore, his little five-year-old sister saw the crucifixion and was never the same after that. She was, she lived in fear, bound in fear. I can't tell you the whole story and I shouldn't, but I say that to say that here is a man, here is a young man who had a central passion for his life, and it was for God and glory, and the glory of Israel. And uh, as the story unfolds, he has a number of things he lives for. He gets in contact with a band of uh, men who live up on the mountain close to Capernaum, and these men are also wanting to live for the glory of Israel. And, of course, they actually are a band of outlaws, but uh, they are, their purpose is to, is to uh, rob and plunder the rich men as they come over the mountain so that they can have an army ready to, when the Messiah comes, to help them set up his kingdom. And the, as the book unfolds, why Daniel starts to become disillusioned. And he has a number of things that, that, that drive him. And these things begin to fail him, uh, one after the other, after the other, after the other, that he has to give up. And uh, let me just read a few snatches from the book for you. At the end of one of the chapters, it says, It is the end of everything, Daniel thought, looking at the closed door. The end of everything we worked for. For the first time, he despaired that the day would ever come. Now, he had met Jesus. He had heard him speak, but nobody could quite figure out this Jesus because he didn't seem to be the Messiah that was going to lead them. And so he has, Daniel has uh, friends. He has the band on the mountain. He has the vow that he has made to uh, live for. And so he had faith in a little band of recruits. He had faith in some friends. And he didn't know about Jesus, but... As the book unfolds, 
one after the next after the next. These things fail him. He becomes disillusioned with the man on the mountain. He becomes disillusioned with uh, and his friends move away to Jerusalem. He's getting lonelier and lonelier. And he, at one point, there are just a few conversations with uh, Jesus. And it takes great skill on an altar to have a conversation with Jesus. But Daniel, at some point, has a conversation. And Jesus knows that, of course, that Daniel has a problem. And Daniel says, uh, Jesus said in the midst of the conversation, he said, Daniel, I, I would have you follow, follow me. And Daniel said, Master, I will fight for you to the end. And then Jesus smiles at him gently and says, My loyal friend, I would ask something much harder than that. Would you love, love for me to the end? Baffled, Daniel felt his hope slipping away. I, I don't understand, he said again. You tell people about the kingdom. Aren't we to fight for it? The kingdom is only bought at a great price, Jesus said. There was one who came just yesterday and wanted to follow me. He was very rich, and when I asked him to give up his wealth, he went away. I'll give you everything I have, Daniel said. Something almost like a twinkle of humor lighted for an instant in the sadness of Jesus' eyes. Uh, riches are not keeping you from the kingdom, he said. You must give up your hate. Daniel felt himself trembling. He was torn in two. Before the appeal in the man's eyes, he felt the whole fabric of his life about to give way, and the very ground beneath his feet felt like shifting sand. He summoned all his strength to battle for the thing that was most precious to him. I made a vow before God, he said. Is not a vow sacred? This is the vow he made when his father would die. Jesus looked at him steadily with a look he knew he would never forget, full of sadness and regret and a deep loneliness beyond any reach. Yes, Jesus said, your vow is sacred. What did you vow, Daniel? To fight! Daniel stopped, remembering the night in the passage, seeing Joel's face. To live and to die for God's victory! A smile suddenly transformed Jesus' face, the old smile, radiant, full of youth and strength. He put his hand on Daniel's shoulder. That is not a vow of hate, he said. Go in peace, my son. You are not far from the kingdom. And that's the end of that, of that chapter. And then on another, just a, a line here. Daniel walked for miles one day. It says he walked the miles back to the village as he had come, aloof from the others, protected behind his dark scowl. Very fascinating little line. Excellent little opportunity to discuss how we hide behind our scowls. You know, if you, if you make yourself uh, blunt enough or gruff enough, you can keep people at a distance. And really, you're very vulnerable inside. And uh, uh, when you, if you talk about this kind of thing with uh, 14, 15, 16-year-olds, there will probably be some among them who are very practiced at protecting themselves behind a rough face. 
Uh, you don't delve into that directly, but as you look together at Daniel here, uh, they can see they can see this, and we can see together that Daniel is really, really very tender behind his dark scowl. And then, as the book comes to an end, one of his friends who has chosen to follow Jesus uh, comments that he... He says, I've chosen to follow Jesus. And how do you know, Daniel said, that you're not risking your life for nothing? And his friend says, we can never know. He said, we're forced to choose not knowing. I have chosen Jesus. Uh, he, he chose Jesus because of the man. And he was not able to foresee what this was going to be. I don't know what he will do. It's enough for me that he has, that he has promised it's not enough for me, Daniel cried. Promises are easy. I want a leader who will make his promises good. And then he went away and he lost that friend because that friend was going to follow Jesus. And now all he had left in life was two things, his hatred and his vow. And uh, as the story comes to a conclusion, his little sister, whom he had been caring for responsibly, who was living in fear, uh, is dying and he sends a message for uh, Jesus to come and at the end uh, you wonder as you get to that last chapter how can the author possibly bring this thing together in one chapter and uh, he had been quite uh, some distance away so it took a couple days till Jesus came and he sent the message to a friend of his and when Jesus walked into the room, his little sister was practically dead. And Daniel himself was, of course, sitting in a daze, uh, burning with anger, and yet kind of uh, puzzled with this uh, Jesus, also intrigued, or burning with despair would be the better word. And when Jesus walked into the room and saw them, he smiled because he recognized that they were ready for him to do something. And it says at the end that Jesus sat there and he just seemed to relax. And the little girl, uh, and then he relaxed a while and then, he, and then he left. He left. And when he left, why? The little girl got up and she was just uh, relieved, really released. And she, she had often asked Daniel to tell and retell and retell the story of the little girl who was raised from the dead. And she said, I know how she feels. I know how that girl felt. And uh, one of Jesus' comments when she got awake, he told her, don't be afraid, do not fear. And Daniel when she said, I know how she felt, she whispered, the girl, Jairus' daughter that you told me about, I know how she felt. And Daniel said, I do too. And the story ends with him walking out the door and across the street <clears throat> was a Roman soldier, a young man who had uh, seen his sister a few times and he hated this young soldier and he had imagined what it would feel like 
to get his hand on this soldier's throat. And uh, the soldier was going to be leaving town the next day and had asked whether he could say goodbye to Leah. And Daniel had told him a day or two before that, if you enter my house, I will kill you. You will not see her. And he walked out the door. Jesus had disappeared. And as he turned around, here he saw the soldier. And he said to the soldier, uh, would you want to come in? My house and say goodbye. And it ends. Now, this this is the book that <laughs> every time I have the opportunity to go with through that with a class, I, I, uh, it's it's an opportunity to share an old friend again with a new class, and uh, I usually. Uh, you have to excuse my emotions here. I usually make it a point as I, uh, when I read that last chapter, I can never read through that last chapter without, without uh, tears every every uh, every other year when I read it. I try to make it a point to have that behind me <laughs> before we cover that last chapter. But it's, and you don't you don't know what the children pick up from it. You you don't insist that they see in it, everything that you see in it, because people have different experiences and different people will see different things and appreciate different things. But <clears throat> it's a living book because it deals with, uh, with real life. And it's that kind of, and those are just two samples. Now, what I do with that book, there is in fact a, a booklet that you can get, I think, through Life from Lifeway. <clears throat> Lifeway, I'm not sure what the name of the publisher is now. And they have a whole set of ditto masters made to go with this book. All different kinds of questions and crossword puzzles and such. And uh, a teacher's guide and all different kinds of things to talk about with that. I had that set and I used it a year or two. But you'll find if you do something uh, year after year, you will not always want to do the same thing in the same way uh, each, each year. I have eventually gotten to the point that I use hardly any of those anymore because I found them somewhat tedious. But I have a <clears throat> I have a folder here that says Brahms Bell, and in it I have a number of uh, of background material and a few questions from that that set. But basically, what I have done is made up uh, on, on one sheet. I have an assignment for each chapter, or each pair of chapters. And so there are 24 assignments. Now, I did not give you that sheet. You really need to make up your own. You need to own the assignments that you make. And so, for example, uh, what I do is, if, if we use a trade book like this, I pass out the book, and I also give each student a little composition book, a blank composition book. And all the work that's done in relation to the book is done in that, in that book. So when they're finished with the with the book, they have all the work they've done for that book in a, in a book. And, uh, for example, chapter one. And I ask them to fill up one side of a page, typically. That's what I'm looking for, for each chapter, one side of a page. So chapter one says, note the themes and topics of conversation. List and briefly describe the four main characters and note the references in the chapter to historical facts. In other words, what historical facts are alluded to in this chapter? Number chapter two is write a one-sentence summary for each of the 14 pages of the chapter. 
and another one is uh, write a one-page summary. Take this off the battery died. Oh, okay. Other examples in chapter nine: discuss Ross Rosh's test of Daniel. Describe Daniel's soft streak. Rosh said, "You've got a soft streak. You, you, you're tender-hearted." Uh, was this, in fact, a flaw? Do you think it was a flaw? And then explain Rosh's purpose and philosophy of life. And then as we get to the end, uh, why does Daniel have misgivings about Rosh after the raid? And then the last chapter, or the last two chapters, chapter next to last, Daniel arrives on the scene as Jesus is feeding the 5,000. Explain its effect on the people, Jesus' response to them, and the content of Daniel and Simon's conversation. Explain the last sentence of the chapter. And then the last chapter, which I was reading to you from, the assignment is, this chapter is packed with stresses, changes, and events as it climaxes the book. Write two pages interpreting these events. Point out profound statements and tell how things stand with Daniel, Thasia, and Leah at the end. Try to leave nothing important unmentioned. And then there's a final concluding assignment in which I give them two, a choice. One choice is to epilogue. List the unanswered questions about the future lives of Daniel, Jewel, Thasia, Leah, Rosh, and Jesus' crucifixion as it might have affected them. Jesus had not been crucified yet. Next, list the basic facts as you want them to be, keeping to the style of the story, and then write another chapter or two to the book. And some students take me up on that, and we have chapter 25 or chapter 26. And then the, another option is to instead write a concluding essay, and it says, this book has a message for everyone in any age. Write a 300 to 500 word essay explaining the theme of the book by outlining the basic plot, telling how the characters develop the theme, and above all, show the changes Daniel experiences from beginning to end. It's an excellent kind of book in which the character is dynamic. He starts out the book being one person, and he ends up being another person. Now, that's uh, aimed at grades 9 and 10, and we've done that a number of times, and it's always enjoyable. You might think that all the books that I reuse in school I cry about. No, that's not true. Uh, there are other kinds of books, too. One of the books we use in grades 7 and 8 is Around the World in 80 Days. Who's read that? That one's a lot of fun. And uh, we meet Phileas Falk who operates like a machine. And when he walks to the exchange each morning, why he places his left foot in front of his right foot 173 times and his right foot in front of his left 174 times, and he arrives at his place of work. And he, he dismissed one of his uh, servants one time because he brought him in the morning his shaving water at 87 degrees instead of 86 degrees. And... We make this trip around the world, and of course there's a Frenchman along with Phileas Fogg as he makes this trip. Uh, the wager is simply that uh, since it's possible to go around the world in 80 days because of the connections of the steamships and so on, he will do it. And the men time, well, theoretically it's possible, but it, it really isn't possible. And Phileas says, well, I will do it. I will do it mechanically. And he was a mechanical person. And he, he does not get ruffled about anything. But he has a French servant. And the Frenchman uh, 
and Jules Verne was a Frenchman. So the Frenchman is true to, uh, oh, right, I'll say it, I'm not a Frenchman, but he's very uh, easily ruffled and very excitable. And so they travel around the world and have all, it's, it's an adventure, it's an experience. And as you travel around the world, you, you meet uh, different kinds of people, and of course there are various deadlines, and some are almost deadlines too. And uh, they ride on an elephant, a train, a ship, a boat, uh, and they come to America and they arrive in California, at Los Angeles, and uh, we learn what Jules Verne thought of America at that time. They're having a political rally in, in uh, California. A political rally, and uh, they are um, some are hollering for the one man, some for the other man, and eventually this ends up in a fight. And uh, they ask some uh, local person, "Oh, this must be a very important uh, person that they're going to vote in." And they said, "Well, no, it's actually a local justice of the peace." And they travel on the transcontinental railroad, which had just been finished, and they stop at, uh, at Salt Lake City, and then there's a little interview with uh, the Mormons, and little points of view in the Mormons. And uh, as they come across the, the United States, they get to a place out west where there's a bridge out. No, there's a bridge that's too weak for the train. It's not safe. And so they stop and they talk things over. And of course, these are Americans talking things over. And so the Frenchmen, uh, they decide that uh, well, if we back the train up far enough, and if we get enough speed, <laughs> we'll be able to cross this bridge. And the Frenchman wants to say, but, but uh, uh, shouldn't the people get off and then uh, walk across and then bring the train? But the Americans will not hear anything of it. The, the engineers said it'll work, it'll work. And so sure enough, they back the train up a couple miles, put on a big head of steam, get up enough speed, and... They go across the bridge that fast, the bridge doesn't, hardly has the weight of the train, but as the caboose goes across, why the bridge falls into the river. Well, event after event, it's a real adventure, and it's a riot for grades seven and eight to read. <laughs> of course, they get to New York City, and they miss the boat, and they're not going to get to England in time for the wager. And so Phyllis, of course, checks out things, and he finally manages to pay a man to take him by himself across the ocean. And so they go part way across and he ends up, uh, at one point earlier he had bought uh, a boat, but this time he couldn't, bought, the man wouldn't sell it. But at any rate, they get across, I won't tell you what happened on that boat. Uh, and they arrive back in, uh, in uh, England and uh, they're a day late, he misses it. It's about a day and two hours late. And so, of course, he's not upset. He goes into his room and his servant goes out for several hours and his servant goes outside and wants to buy something for him and he finds out, oh, he can't buy it. This is, uh, today is uh, not Monday, today is Sunday. And what? Today is still sunny. So his, the, French, the Frenchman, true to his nature and his distracted state of mind, runs back into the house and tells it's still Sunday, it's still Sunday. It's not Monday yet, we're in time. But they only had about five minutes left. So they go out the door and he, they get into a cab and he offers to pay the cabman something like 100 pounds if he gets them to the exchange in five minutes. And so they go there, turning corners on two wheels, running over dogs. And <laughs> the men back at the 
the men back at the exchange are sitting there, and this is the last evening, and there is about three minutes left for this man to arrive. Nobody has heard anything about Phileas Fall, but they're ready to claim the 20,000 pounds, and just before the clock strikes, he walks, doesn't run, he walks in the door and says, here I am, gentlemen. And what had happened was that they had forgotten that when you go around the world in that direction, you cross the international dateline, and so <laughs> they were a day ahead of what they thought they were. Well, anyway, it's, <laughs> it's full of adventure and a good little geography lesson. You get in different parts of the world. And there are, there are all kinds of books like that that you, can, that you can read. There are playful stories. There are profound stories. There are, there are all kinds of ones like that. And there's no particular book that you, that you must read. Uh, there are so many good ones, but... Find some of those, read them, uh, read them yourself. You ought to have more books of your own that you have read that you would like to share with the class than you ever have time to share with them, and books that you can call their attention to. And another challenge, I tried something this last year, and that was, see, the problem, if you want to do something like this with the class, you have to have multiple copies, one for each student. And so... What if you can't do that? Well, there's also the option of simply getting a copy. Uh, one last year, for the first time I tried, I got two copies of a book. I had one for myself and, and uh, one for the student to read. And that, so what I did was gave the book to, uh, say, Titus one day, and I say, tomorrow I want you to read chapter three. And then the next day, and he, he pre-reads that, and the next day when he reads, it's really a... because the rest of the students have not read that. They do not have a book to follow. They need to listen to him because he's reading it to them. I have my copy that I can follow and know what's, what's coming up uh, the next day. Or if, might happen, he forgets it and leaves it at home, why, he could read out of my copy the next day. And we then, we, we did a lot of reading in reading class. And this was, again, grades uh, 7 and 8. And uh, some of the days we discussed things. Occasionally, I had them. I came up with something for them to write, but we didn't do a whole lot of uh, a lot of quote work with that book. We did some other parallel things at the same time. That particular book was called "Rule of Thunder." Hear my cry. It's on the list back there. And one of the discussions we had one day uh, in that book. It's uh, the setting is of black family living in, I believe, Alabama in the 19, uh, during, just after the Depression. And we see how the blacks were treated by the whites and how this family coped with it. And it's an excellent, excellent opportunity to see how in all cases there are us and then there are others and how easy it is to look down on others and to see how we were somewhat distanced from both of them, so we could see how both of them did some right things and some wrong things. I don't have time to say more about that book. Now, the papers that were passed out to you, one of them says 25 things to have students do after reading an assignment. Suppose you do want to come up with something different 
for a change other than just saying, all right, read the chapter and do the questions, or read section five and do the questions at the end of section five, or read the story and write the questions at the end of the story. There are different kinds of things that you can do. Some of these take some work, such as number one, correct an inaccurate summary you give to them, but if you really want to teach students to summarize, you need to teach them to summarize. They need to practice. A good summary includes material from the beginning, middle, and end, it includes a few details, and but yet gives you the big picture. It has to have some specifics or it's not really a summary. Anyway, so but you can give them a summary and they can see why it's a bad one. Uh, either it's a poor summary or an inaccurate one and they, they correct it. Number two is a very easy one to make. This was not my idea. I picked this up some years ago and it's you can use this in history. You can use it in any anytime they read something, health, whatever. And what you do is simply choose groups of words. As you read through the lesson, you can read through the lesson with a highlighter in your, highlighter in your hand and you can highlight certain words. And then you proceed to either write them on the chalkboard or put them on a piece of paper. And you have them write, use each group of words in one good sentence that says something accurate about the story. And you're requiring the students to understand the story and also to interact and to synthesize this. And so, for example, if you were doing the Good Samaritan, you could write grammatically some, uh, a man attacked some thieves. That would be an accurate sentence, but it would not be acceptable for the story because that's not what happened in that story. And you encourage them to write sentences fairly short what you'll have as students get used to this, they will use many ands, and you say, try to write your sentences without, without using the word and. And encourage them to use words like while and during and, as, and you know, to subordinate because. And it doesn't, you don't need an answer key for this. You can collect those papers and you can simply read through it and as soon as you read that sentence, you know whether it was right or whether it was wrong, and you can give them. It's a bit subjective there. You can have partial credit or full credit. But And how do you, you can use this with very, very young children. You can give them just one word and say, write a sentence using this word and tell something about the story. And then it's a bit more challenging if you have two words. And you can have the words in the order in which they happen in the story. You can reverse the order. You can mix up the order. And the more words you, you uh, include in the set, the harder it is. And the further apart in the story that you pull the words, the harder it is. And so if you're doing the Good Samaritan and you said something like thieves' neighbor, how would you write one sentence saying something too about the story using the word thieves and neighbor? Any volunteers back there? You're thinking, aren't you? Because you know the story, but you've got to whirl this thing around and somehow use both those words in one sentence saying something true and accurate about the story of the Good Samaritan. Anybody, any takers back there? Uh, and by the way, you can change the form of the word. It can be thief. Thieves, thieving, or in this case, it should be the noun and neighbor. Let's hear somebody. Yes. Good. Right. And the interesting thing: every student sentence will be different, and they can all be correct. That's that's wonderful. And 
Or you could use an overall thing by saying Jesus taught. Jesus defined the word neighbor by telling the story of a man suffering from thieves. All right, another one is to have them make a list. Five or ten main events or five or ten main ideas. Uh, that is, if it was a narration piece, if they read about things that happened, then you would use the, the events. And if they're reading a science book, five or ten main ideas. And so on. I will not expound on all these. You can give them a list of answers and have them write the questions. How about that? Give some answers. Write a good question that this answers based on. All right. Uh, 13, make an inaccurate list of notes. I've done that for a test already. I wrote an essay that was really uh, an essay answer that is uh, a summary. And the students need to read through it and find the mistakes and correct them. They don't like that kind of thing. Say you're studying the, the, uh, the, uh, the human body or something with physiology, and you say the the uh, the ankle bones are the carpals and the upper leg bone is called the the uh, humerus and so they read through this <coughs> is this right or isn't it? and they need to cross it out and correct it and so on down the list and then at the bottom is another list of some ways to respond to a chapter uh, somewhat related but there are a few things that are, are different there and the bottom one is more keyed to a chapter in a book that you're reading. For example, if you're reading a book like uh, this, The Bronze Bell, or any other book, these are questions that would be related to a chapter in a book like that, whereas the top 25 is things that they could do after almost any assignment that involve content, whether it's health, history, science, or literature, reading, and so on. There's also, here are some generic questions that you could actually give students at this list to copy in their assignment books or somewhere, or you could post on the wall on a chart. And you could, these are generic questions that you can use with any short story at all. You only need one set of questions. Now, of course, you want some variety, but describe what is, what's the problem here? What's the problem here? If there's no problem, there's no story, for, for the most part. Or name the main characters and describe them. Now, how they try, this basically follows the outline of a story. I had the experience some years ago telling my, one of my boys a story, and tell me a story. All right, I'll tell you a story. And there was a rabbit living in the woods. And he went out one morning for a hop. And he hopped and he hopped. And he ate some grass and then he hopped some more. And then he went back and climbed in his burrow and he went to sleep. That's the end. No, 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 they weren't satisfied. Well, what's wrong? Well, okay. Was not long enough. No. All right. So I repeated the story, but this time he hopped and he hopped and he hopped and he hopped and he hopped. And he went further. And he ate some grass, and then he also ate some flowers, and went back home and climbed into his. And went to no, 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 it still wasn't the story. I think I did it three times, and I finally asked him, well, what's wrong? Now, this boy was about four at the time. 
he got this little smile and he said, the fox didn't come. <laughs> you talk about abstract reasoning with children. He knew the missing element. There's got to be some crisis. There's got to be some tension here. And so, what is the, what's the problem here? Now, it's, on this side of eternity, I guess most stories do have problems. But anyway, there are, there are characters, even if the characters are, are uh, animals, they're probably actually people. And some of the difficulties, you'll have to excuse me, I need to stay close enough to the microphone here, so you'll have to work around my head. Tell how they tried to solve the problem. What are some difficulties they had and how successful were they? Were they able to solve them? And was there any extra complication? What's the theme? What's the author? And you don't always need to do this, especially with younger children. You don't want to harp on that theme. Let the story stand. But you, you might go on and ask that. What's this story about? Uh, for example, the Billy Goat Scruff. Well, yes, it's about uh, fear or trust in the big brother. When my big, when my big brother comes, he'll be able to take care of this. And there are things that they can understand. So those are general things that you can assign. And it actually helps children to develop a pattern of thinking. They really should think like this as they read things. Yes, what is the problem here? What is the situation? Another paper that I passed out was one that has book report outlines. I've had students do book reports over the years and gave them some, told them how I wanted them to do it. And I finally thought, well, it's about time to come up with some conclusions here. And so I gathered some together and typed up, and I, I photocopied this, so it's a bit, uh, it's not professionally done, but I thought you might, might find it helpful. When, if you, you can assign students to do a book, to read a book a month, or a book every other month, and say in September we'll do fiction, October we do a biography, and November we do something out of the 500 section, uh, something having to do with science, uh, 600s with the arts or whatever, and then another fiction, another month, pick one of your own. Anyway, and if you do this particular kind of book, why then you choose the appropriate number to, to match it. And look at, for example, number three, what this calls for is for them to briefly, briefly, in a paragraph, tell what happened in the book. What really is going on here with well, a plot? A little bit like this overhead here. And then what's the setting? Name and describe two main characters, a couple sentences each. What are they trying to do? What are two problems they met? We're talking about a whole book here. Limit it to two. Tell the climax. What's the theme? Could it have happened? Would you like it to end different? And what worthwhile things can we learn? Now, what you are avoiding and steering away from is do not rewrite the story. A book report does not consist of reading a book and then transferring that from the book onto notebook paper. That doesn't really... Well, it, if you summarize the book, that does show that you summarize. But you want them to do more than that, and you don't want them to write and write and write and write. And one of the hardest things is that last one. They'll say, I didn't learn anything. Well, I count that last one significantly. If that's blank, you, you certainly don't get an A. You've got to come up with something. 
many of the impressions that we have about the world, if you read a book about uh, logging, uh, you might not be aware of it, but your, your uh, ideas about what it's like being a logger, working in the forest, might very well come from a book that you've read. I also like to have them do oral book reports, and you want some structure there. If you have an oral book report, you do not want them to stay. You'll have two kinds of oral book reports. One person will get up there and talk for about 35 seconds about some of the main things, and the other person will get up there and he'll talk for 35 minutes. He'll tell you the whole book, and the people are kind of going to sleep. Uh, so what I have them do, this isn't on your paper. You might want to jot this down. When a person gives an oral book report, he goes up there, takes his book along, and says, I read The Bronze Bell by Elizabeth George Spear. That, what's going on? And then we give a brief overview, something about it. This is a book about a young man, Daniel, who was wanting to live for the glory of Israel, looking for the Messiah to come. And they might talk for, and by the way, I model this for students. I say, at some point, not every year, but I give them an example of a D oral book report, and I walk up there and say, this book was about, it's called The Bronze Bell, and I'll model, we'll finish, that was a D there, and then I'll show them what I'm looking for with a C or an A. Something about, a, a few things that happen, some things it tells about, and then I, I do not want them to tell the story. I want them to pick something some small part to tell us about in detail. And so they might lock in on the part where Daniel's uh, parent, Daniel's father, uh, tried to free his brother when his brother was going to be taken and made a slave in the Roman galleys, and he was caught and he was crucified. And then the other thing we want to hear is a couple selections from the book. So they should go up there with the bookmark, and we have a little reading and the person, and of course, they're going to pick a part of the book that they enjoy. And so they will say, often it is right from here, yes. They'll, they'll introduce us to number three, and then they'll say, all right, and I'll read a section now that shows that. And then they'll proceed to read a page or maybe two. And that also gives them some security when they go up. They know they're going to get a chance to read something. And that's You're kind of safe when part of is a significant part of your report is just reading something. And then give a brief summary of how it turned out. And then uh, number six, and this is a significant part of the grade, but it's tough. Tell how you liked it or didn't like it and why. I, I enjoyed this book or I like this book because it, whatever, I learned some information from it. And you can give an oral book report from a, a factual book also. You could give an oral book report on um, Macaulay's The Way Things Work if you read the whole book by selecting just one event, one explanation from there, how tape recorders work. And if they didn't like it, they're to tell why. I, I read it, but actually I didn't really care for it because I don't like stories anymore that don't have any more of a plot than that or whatever. And... Then this last one, something you learned, how might the reading of this book affect the rest of your life? Well, this one here, for example, you could say, I, I will be able to understand how a person could really want to work hard for the kingdom of Israel and actually be working in the opposite direction of what he should work. Now, a student 
the student gives you that kind of an insight, that's that's wonderful. You don't always get that kind of a of a statement, but you want them to try. You want them to try to give some statement like that in an oral book report. Book reports are something that can be done with any curriculum. You can have them regularly. This, by the way, the oral book report gives opportunity for them to do public speaking. You're doing several things at once. They're reading. They're reading worthwhile things. They're learning. And they have opportunity to, to have a, a speak to speak in front of the group. Plus, the other students are getting the benefit of that book. And that's one of the wonderful things about oral book reports. You only have time to read so many books in your life, but by having a student share what he's read with others, they can learn something about the book. And in fact, they may want to read it themselves then sometime too. Let me show you a different kind of a thing here. We're thinking of the theme of, of preparing lessons, conceiving and preparing lessons. Let's do something very, very mundane, but uh, this can work in a variety of ways. Let's assume we have something we want to learn. And let's assume you don't know anything about this, except that this is a map of Africa. All right? Now, I want you to repeat after me when I tell you to. This map is Africa. This map no, is excuse Africa. me. Just the word. Africa. Africa. Now, let's learn the names of some countries here. When I point to it, you name it. This is Libya. Libya. This is Algeria. Algeria. Tunisia. Now, here we have some mountains. These are called the Atlas Mountains. What are they? This is This is a river. It starts down here at a lake, and this is a Nile River. The river is This is Here's another major river, the Niger. Let's say it. This is the Nile. This river is the Zaire. I think maybe they changed the name. Does anybody know? Is it back again to the Congo? Okay, still the Zaire River. All right. Zaire River. Let's say. All right, Dan, let's do the other rivers down here. We have the, uh, <laughs> to refresh my own memory, the uh, Zambezi. Zambezi. And another one down here, the Limpopo. All right, you get the idea. Now, when you do a drill like that, a drill is spirited and you don't do it very long. Now, if you don't have an overhead, why, you can simply take a, a, a chart or, the, of course, if you have the map itself and they can't read the map, you can, you can point to it. But the point is that you can learn this together. You don't have to tell them, all right, learn those countries. Uh, you actually can start from scratch. And you can see how that can work if you, if I did that with uh, 
something that was really more foreign to you, like the counties of Pennsylvania, and you don't know the counties of Pennsylvania, we can, it's the saying it and doing it together and repeat it. Now, there is, that was a little bit like my list of nonsense syllables, you see. However, there's a little more purpose and a little more meaning to this. And by the way, a lot more. <laughs> by the way, children should learn the names of major rivers, mountain chains of the world, and so on. In fact, there's a book called Mapping the World by Heart. There's a teacher, you talk about having a passion for doing something, there's a sixth grade teacher who taught his students throughout a year to be able to draw a map of the world out of their minds. And they started, they worked at this throughout the year. At the end of the year, they, they had a two-day examination. And he gave them a large piece of poster board like that back there and they reproduced the map of the world out of their heads. By putting on the Greenwich, they started out with the uh, zero meridian and the equator. They put the other meridians on. They knew about how to proportion that. They were probably allowed to use uh, yardsticks for that. And then they, they had learned where uh, the major uh, parts of Europe cross these certain lines. So they were able to get a reasonable contour of Eurasia and so on, put in the countries, put in major rivers, major cities and oceans, seas, bays. Uh, and it, they, they, had, they knew that much information that it took them two days to, uh, to get this down. And they thoroughly enjoyed it, fifth and sixth graders. That's an age that just will eat something like that up. Now, if as a teacher you see, if you can imagine how you could do that, you could do it. But if you can't imagine how you can motivate your students to do it, don't try it. <laughs> it won't work. All right. You have a paper, I believe, called The Whirlybird. Okay. This is a paper that we used in a teaching reading class some years ago. Uh, this was in uh, Faith Builders. I think it was 1988. This is two paragraphs taken from a fifth grade reader the paragraphs aren't really so profound. It's about a hummingbird opening his eyes in a nest. Now, the point is here, though, the exercise was to ask questions and see how many questions. And we, we came up with, actually, I think this might have been my list. As a group, we came up with about 50 more questions based on these two paragraphs. The exercise is to see is there any limit to the number of interesting questions you can ask? And we deliberately sh uh, picked a short piece so that you could, would be challenged to get the, the mundane questions out of the way. And so notice the kinds of questions. And some of them fit young children, some fit older ones. Who's the I? Who's speaking? What's the form of the narrative or of the writing? Why aren't there any quotation marks? He opened his eyes. Had he been sleeping? Well, no, he was just born. Why couldn't he move? Or what couldn't he move? Some of these things are straight recall, some require some thinking. What color are the leaves? Hey, look up there quickly. What color were the leaves, by the way? Who can answer quickly? How do you know? Right, blue summer Scott. Leaves weren't blue. Leaves are green in the summer. How many eggs hatched? Uh, how big is a navy bean? See, that calls for something from outside the story. Does anybody know how big a navy bean is? Well, maybe somebody suggests, yeah, I think it's about the size of a baked bean or whatever. That gives you, when you read the passage, if you don't know how big a navy bean is, that doesn't tell you how big this was because it says it was the size of a navy bean. All right. Now, I'm not at all suggesting 
that you that you do this with every story that you read that you come up with 25 or 50 questions on a paragraph but the point is look at the kinds of questions that can be asked and the kinds of questions that you can challenge students to ask or that you can encourage them to ask did you ever wonder what is there to talk about we read the story all right we've all read it what is it to talk about well if we have now what i'd like you to do where our time is evaporating here but I have at the bottom a two paragraphs on the golden windows. To save time here, I want you to, I'll give you about five minutes. I want you to see how many questions you can write based on paragraph number one only, and try to write a question that you think nobody else will ask. That is, since we don't have much time, don't bother with the obvious questions. Try to think of some uh, interesting, some uh, creative, some different kinds of questions to ask based on paragraph one of the Golden Windows. We'll take five minutes for that. Excuse me, you may use paragraph two if you want to. It'll, it'll be easier. Five minutes is enough time to read paragraph two also. don't have to be earth-shaking or cute, but uh, what, what could you ask? How old was the boy? How old was the boy? All right, we won't take time to answer these, but that's a good question because it doesn't tell us, does it? And that's an excellent thing to consider. What age boy would do this? What else? What was the, all right, how do we know that they were poor? Good, what else? Which direction was he looking when he looked at the other mountains? Mm -hmm. Good question. Some, some questions call for use of logic. Can you think here, where does the sun go down? Where would the reflection be? There's all kinds of things you can ask and, and you'll, you want people to, do various kinds of thinking. And if you ask only logical kinds of questions, they would, it would be tedious. But on the other hand, they have to be able to do that. What else? All right. Why did he assume that supper time was associated with closing time of the shutters? What else? Do you think the boys own house has shining lights and windows like the other house? And why did the second Okay, did his own house have shining... Who knows this story? <laughs> yes. Did his own house have shining windows? What else? Yes. What would be the boy's reaction when he discovered the truth about the house? All right. When he discovered the truth about the house over there. What else? 
if you ask a few questions, sometimes when you read through a story, if you're reading through it for the first time, you might between times ask a few questions. And you could, there's the kind of question you would ask along the way. And what about these windows? Why does he think they're diamond? Another question. Yes. Okay. All right. Good. What what does he do in the evenings when there's no visible sunset? Well, if it's cloudy. Good question. Yes. What else? Yes. What does it look? What does it actually look like? And you can think of a a student might might appreciate, might enjoy giving a personal answer to a question, such as. What do you do in your own hour? Do you have an own hour? Does, does any of you have a time like this on your own that you can do? What do you like to do? Uh, don't push anybody, but somebody will volunteer and say, I like to go up in the woods and I like to sit there and, and uh, listen to the birds. And you might get a, a personal response like that. Well, I think you get the idea. There are all kinds of things that you can ask and you don't want to, you can call for different kinds of reasoning and thinking. and You don't want to overdo one kind. The last sheet that was passed out, you can read through on your own. It's dealing with evaluating when you write a test. There's some guidelines here for making a test. Make sure that it is valid, that it in fact, in fact does test what you taught. If it doesn't, it's not valid. And secondly, is it reliable? That is, did do the scores reflect what they really know? And sometimes you collect a test and you say, hmm, I think they actually know more than this. Well, it could be a variety of reasons. If they had just had five tests that morning, and this was the fifth one they had, why well, then you have good reason to doubt whether the score actually reflects what he knows. You better uh, not give the five tests back to back, and so on. And does the test really test what they know? Or is it testing a combination of things? And that's a big subject in itself. But there's some suggestions here for matching, multiple choice, true, false, and so on. And I think most of these are, are self-explanatory. And you can look through those on your own and use them as you make, as you make tests. I'll read a little poem here yet that somebody suggested would fit in well here from uh, Guy Rice, Guy Dowd's a book called Mulder of Dreams. He was a teacher of the year some years ago. He was a very energetic person who loved students, teacher in a public school. And he was given an award uh, in the White House by President Reagan. And uh, there, there was opportunity for him to meet him personally. And President Reagan copied this little poem by pretty much by memory down on a piece of paper and handed it to Guy because uh, this was a poem that had been special to President Reagan when he was young. And the poem is called Teachers. And it says, you are the molders of their dreams, the gods who build or crush their young beliefs of right or wrong. You are the spark that sets aflame the poet's hand or lights the flame in some great singer's song. You are the gods of young, the very young. You are the guardian of a million dreams. Your smile or frown can heal or pierce a heart. Yours are 100 lives, 1,000 lives. 
Yours is the pride of loving them, the sorrow, too. Your patient work, your touch, make you the God of hope that fills their souls with dreams and make those dreams come true. Now, you can adapt that. We may not use the, the uh, analogy there of being a God, but the truth is that there's many a person who can look back to a particular teacher, a particular teacher, and personally, I can do that. I learned most of the grammar I know in one year in grade nine from an English teacher. Why? I'm not sure, but somehow it clicked that year. I can remember that teacher specifically. And so it is the teacher that makes a difference. And it's amazing. You don't know who they're, who's looking at you and how they're looking at you, but the, the little things you say, the hope that you have, the, the hope that you have for them, that you can do this, Will, can cause them to believe that they can and to, it can unleash uh, talents and skills and interests. It's a wonderful opportunity. God bless you. Miley wants to have some words. Thank you for coming. I hope you enjoyed the week and found it helpful. For the most current Faith Builders recordings, visit christianlearning.org. And for more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.